Well, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16? We are about to enter uh, a new section in the book. We are going through 1 Samuel on Sunday morning here at Calvary, if you're new with us. And when we began this book, we said the underlying theme of 1 and 2 Samuel is really leadership. Leadership. You know, Paul the Apostle said the things in the Old Testament were written for our learning. And the one thing we can learn from the history of Israel is this. In the absence of godly leadership, a nation will suffer and decline, whereas in the presence of godly leadership, it will prosper and be strengthened. Or to put it another way, as leaders go, so goes the nation. The books of First and Second Samuel chronicle for us the lives of three of Israel's most famous leaders, Samuel, Saul, and David. Samuel served the nation as a judge, its last judge. Saul as its first king, and David as its second king. Now, as we have been studying Samuel's life, it's obvious that he was one of Israel's best leaders, serving the nation from the time he was just a boy until he was an old man. And when he became an old man, the people said to him, Samuel, you're too old to lead the nation anymore. And your sons, they don't walk with the Lord as you do. They were corrupt, his boys, unfortunately. They said, look, we want a king like the Gentile nations around us. All right, They get to have a king. We want a king. We want to be like them. Samuel brought to the Lord, and the Lord says, go ahead. Anoint Saul, the son of Kish, their king. As we've already pointed out, though, Saul was the king the people wanted, not really the king God wanted. Uh, we have already learned in 1 Samuel how that God gave them a king after their heart, not really after his heart. And what was their heart? What were they looking for? Well, they wanted a king that was impressive, that had a presence about him, somebody that had a lot of physical charisma. And of course, that was exactly who Saul was. They chose a man who was taller than anybody else in the kingdom, who was better looking than anybody else. This is what they were looking at. This is what they wanted in a leader. They looked only at Saul's physical outward qualities and neglected completely his heart. God's all about the heart, as we're going to see today. And Saul never really followed the Lord with all his heart because his heart really wasn't given over to God completely. He proved this time after time by only partially obeying what God told him to do. Of course, the final straw came in chapter 15 when God had told him he was to take the armies of Israel and wipe out utterly the Amalekites and even all their livestock. The Amalekites were very wicked people into child sacrifice. Uh, they were into demonology, uh, very wicked people. Of course, their history goes back all the way when God led his people out of Egypt. The Amalekites ambushed the rear of the line. Uh, the people that could least defend themselves, the elderly, the handicapped, the sickly, and so on. And they attacked and slaughtered those at the back of the line. And God said, someday, uh, when I get you settled in the land, uh, I am going to give the command to wipe out the Amalekites utterly. Well, that day had come. Although God gave them four to five hundred years to repent, they did not and so God finally gave the command to Saul to take the armies of Israel and wipe them out. Saul did not do that. He wiped out a good number of them, kept many more alive, kept King Agag alive, and the choices of the animals he kept alive to sacrifice to the Lord. Well, you know, as we studied chapter 15 last couple of weeks, 
God sent Samuel to Saul to confront him. And again, we pick it up in chapter 15, just backing up to verse 10. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning, basically he went out to meet Saul, dropped down to verse 26. He finds Saul and says to him, Saul, because you have rejected God's word, you have not been faithful to God, you have violated everything he's told you to do, because you have rejected God's word in God, he has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now, listen, it greatly grieved Samuel that God was removing Saul from being king. I think that Samuel really loved Saul. I think that Saul was like a, a son to him. And it just broke his heart to see this man being taken out of the role as, of king. And so he mourns for Saul many days. Well, verse 1 of chapter 16, the Lord says to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? The Hebrew word for mourn is a word that means to mourn for the dead. It just shows us the depths of Samuel's sorrow over Saul. Guys, sometimes we can get more attached to the instrument rather than the one who uses the instrument. I have seen many Christians over the years who are more attached to their pastor, more loyal to him than it seems they are to God himself, so much so. that When it comes out that a pastor has been cheating on his wife or embezzling money from the church and has to be removed from ministry. I have seen these kind of Christians mourn more for him than they do that God's name has been disgraced and denigrated. Now look, it's important that a congregation sticks by their pastor when he's going through a rough patch. Every pastor goes through it, just like, you know, you want us to stick by you when you're going through a rough time. That's how we want to be treated. We're just human beings. We make mistakes. Sometimes we go through difficult times. And it's important for a congregation to rally around their pastor when he is going through a difficult time. But look, having an ongoing affair with a woman in the church or embezzling money, that's not a rough patch. That's grounds for dismissal. And when that happens, I have seen churches and people in those churches that are more loyal, loyalty is important, we'll talk about that more in a moment, are more loyal to their pastor than they are the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifteen years ago, there was a pastor in Southern California, I know who he is because he spoke at Calvary chapels around the area. Young guy, very charismatic guy, he took over a church in 1988 with about 400 people in it, and uh, in 12 years, that church grew to 12,000 people. They bought a big piece of property out in Southern California, they were building a sanctuary, giant sanctuary, uh, a, a school, and I think even a conference center. All this was going on. The church was exploding. When it came out, some pictures surfaced of this man uh, with some people in a backyard at a barbecue or something. Uh, he was in a hot tub with two women. One was his wife, and both of the women were topless. And when this came out, of course, everyone was in an uproar, or many people were, and they were calling for his removal. He tried to make light out of it, saying, well, it was really no big deal. Really? No big deal? And so he had to step down. And they interviewed some of the people in the church. I saw some of the interviews. 
And many of them said, well, he's my pastor. Wherever he goes, I'm going. That's noble, but it's misguided. We are to follow Jesus, first and foremost. Paul says, follow me as I do what? Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If the day comes when I stop following Jesus and get into sin, you better not follow me. You better stay loyal to your Savior. We just have to understand this. But guys, listen, it doesn't just apply to holding on to leaders. People can hold on to traditions and institutions in the church and mourn the loss of them more than looking to God to do a new thing. I think that many people would rather hold on to the past, even if it hasn't been so good, than to trust God to give them a new beginning and take them into the future. I think one author put it well when he said, and I quote, Through the centuries, Christians have often been trapped by their inability to turn loose of things which no longer seem to serve God's purposes. We grow accustomed to institutions, organizations, programs, ways of thinking, and ways of doing things. We develop such an emotional attachment to them that long after their usefulness to God has passed, we hold tenaciously uh, to them. Sometimes the hardest thing to get rid of is something that no longer meets a need. We often need help from God to turn loose of what is past and to face the future that God has planned for us, end quote. So we see here in 1 Samuel 16, God wanting to do a new thing. He wants to do a new thing, a new beginning for the nation. Saul has been a disaster. And so now God wants to give them a man after his heart. You say, well, why did God give the people a man after their heart? Why did he just give them a man after his heart to begin with? Because, guys, sometimes God has to give us what we want to teach us what we need. We want a lot of things. Some of those things are not that good for us. And by giving us sometimes the things we want, we realize they're not what I need. So God had a new man in mind. And so he sends Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king. Verse 1, once again. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now Bethlehem was a small but well-known place to the Jewish people. It was near Bethlehem that Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob, died while giving birth to Benjamin. It was in Bethlehem that Ruth, the Moabitess, who was a widow, uh, found a husband named Boaz, and together they had a child named Obed, David's grandfather. David, of course, would go on to be Israel's most famous king. He lived and grew up in Bethlehem. And, of course, the little town of Bethlehem's most famous claim to fame was that it was there that our Savior was born, the one that God had prophesied about so many years earlier in Micah 5, verse 2. In fact, the name Bethlehem means house of bread, a fitting name for the place where the bread from heaven would come down to dwell among us in human form. So God says, I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now, Jesse was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. So, verse 2, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. Now, Samuel's fear was understandable. Traveling from Ramah, where he lived, to Bethlehem was about an 11-mile journey. But it would take him right through Gibeah, which is the town where Saul lived. And Samuel had not spoken to Saul since the day that God sent Samuel to Saul to tell him God was removing him from being king over Israel. And Saul had a reputation, (laughs) as we're going to see in the future, for being unstable at times and given to fits of anger toward those he believed were against him. And so Samuel was afraid of what Saul might do to him if he thought he was on his way to anoint a new king. So God provided Samuel with a cover story. He said, look, take a heifer with you. And if you walk through Gibeah and Saul sees you and says, what are you doing? Say, I'm going down to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice. Now look, this would have been a fellowship or what was called a peace offering. It was a common offering made for a town that was in good standing with the Lord. So this was not a lie. This was a a good, quiet, law-abiding community. And it was very common for a prophet to go and to... Uh, in a town that honored the Lord and really was obeying what he said to offer a peace. The peace offering was a fellowship offering. When you offered it to God, you were saying, Lord, we really enjoy being in fellowship with you. And so this was very, a com- very common practice uh, to offer that kind of a... It would have been appropriate. Uh, it wasn't a lie. What Saul didn't need to know was that while Samuel was there offering this sacrifice, God was going to have him anoint a new king. So verse 4... So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Now, why were the elders of Bethlehem so afraid upon seeing Samuel come to their town? Well, primarily because whenever God sent a prophet to a town, it was usually, listen, it was usually not exclusively to pronounce some kind of judgment upon them for violating what he had said. And even though, as we just said, Bethlehem was a quiet, law-abiding town, you never knew as elders who in the town was secretly worshiping idols. You didn't know if a group of people were secretly meeting in someone's house to burn incense to Baal. God saw it. So if a prophet showed up at your doorstep, you know, even though in your mind as leaders you think, well, we haven't done anything wrong, you never really knew what was going on behind closed doors. Maybe some sin was being committed and God was holding the whole town accountable, sending a prophet to declare judgment. So naturally, when Samuel showed up on their doorstep, uh, they thought the worst and trembled out the question, do you come peaceably? To which Samuel responded, yes, peaceably, calm down. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, verse 5. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So God sends Samuel to Bethlehem, meets with the elders. I've come in a sacrifice, but I want you to bring Jesse and his sons to me. I have special business with them. So there they are, verse 6. They came, and here comes Jesse's sons coming before Samuel. Samuel sees Jesse's firstborn son, Eliab. It doesn't say here what he looked like, but I'm assuming or I'm inferring, again, he was a tall, good-looking kid, strong, good build, because Samuel says in his heart as he's looking at 
Eliab, certainly this is the Lord's anointed. This kid's got to be the next king. Look at him. He looks like a king written all over him. But very quickly, the Lord spoke to Samuel's heart in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called his next son, Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Now look, Samuel was guilty of the same mistake the people had made when they chose Saul to be their king. He was doing the very same thing with Eliab. He was looking at the outward attributes. Of course, that's what the people did when they chose Saul. Why did they choose Saul? Basically, he was tall, dark, and handsome. And in their minds... What better king than to have a guy like this? You know, he's got a real presence about him. He looks kingly, right? Samuel made the same mistake. God is now sending him to anoint a new king. What does he do? He looks at Jesse's oldest son and goes, Wow, this, is, this kid's the next king. Look at how tall and good looking he is. And God says, Samuel, don't look at his outward appearance. Man looks at the outward, but God looks upon the heart. And guys, verse 7 is not only the key verse of the chapter. Listen, it is the key principle for all those that the Lord chooses to serve him. He always chooses his servants based on heart attitudes, not on physical attributes. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. Let me just show you what I mean. The Lord is looking for servants. His eyes are going to and fro about the face of the earth looking for those to serve him. But notice what he's looking for. His eyes run to and fro. Verse 9 of chapter 16, Second Chronicles. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those, listen, whose heart is loyal to him. Hold on to that. You don't have to turn to these next two. I'll just read them to you. Jeremiah 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the what? the heart. I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. God is always on the lookout for right hearts. When Solomon was dedicating the temple after it was finally built, and he's offering a prayer to the Lord, talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, if your people do this and they pray in this place, forgive them. If they do this, Lord, but they pray here, Lord, forgive them. We read in 1 Kings 8, verse 39, Then here in heaven, you know, if they mess up, they blow it, and they pray, then, you know, you're in heaven, Lord, here in your dwelling place, and forgive and act to give to everyone according to his ways, listen, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. God knows the heart. That's why he can pick somebody based on their heart. Now you say, well, we can't do that. We don't know the heart like God does. So how can we pick leaders that are men or women after God's heart? Well, you've got to give the Lord time to show you. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the good treasures of a man's heart, he brings forth good things, Jesus said. Give God time to show you. 
God here wanting to do a new beginning. Not wanting to choose a king based on outward physicality, but on inward spirituality. He says, Samuel, don't make the same mistake the people made. They looked at the outward, the height, the stature. Look at the mess Saul was. I don't see things that way. I look at the heart. Now you read that and you go, okay, but what does that mean? <laughs> okay, uh, what is he looking at? Let me say this to you. When it comes to God choosing people to serve him, let's first of all look at what he's not looking at. He's first of all not looking at the color of their skin. God is no respecter of persons. He is not prejudiced. He doesn't bless people and use people based on their nationality or the color of their skin. He loves all people the same. He also is not looking at their outward beauty. You know, I've seen some interesting studies. Uh, I've actually seen it on TV, one of them, where they uh, set up um, interviews. This was a real interview situation. But the interviewer, the boss that was interviewing applicants, didn't realize that he was kind of being videoed. And what they did was they sent, everyone was qualified, they sent uh, to do the interview several very good-looking people, men and women, and then several very ordinary, kind of plain-looking people. I don't know what it was, like 90% of the time the good-looking people were chosen, okay? Because that's what the world does. They look at the outward appearance. God doesn't do that. He's also not looking at their social standing, how popular they are, how powerful, or how much prestige they have in the eyes of others. He's not looking at the car they drive, the house they live in, or the designer clothes they wear. He doesn't care about any of that. That may impress us. doesn't impress God. Guess what? He's not even looking at how smart a person is. Praise God for that. <laughs> or how many degrees they've earned. All of these things the world looks at when choosing its leaders, but not God. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Let me read it to you. He said, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and even used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Amen. It's so important that we understand when it comes to the people God uses. Paul says he doesn't choose many wise. He doesn't say he doesn't choose any wise or any gifted. He doesn't choose many. He chooses the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies. So that when God works through them, he receives all the glory. That nobody can say, wow, I know why God used that person for ministry. Because, wow, are they gifted? Are they talented? And so on. Sometimes God uses the most ridiculous, foolish people to do his greatest work through. That when he works, nobody can say it was because of that foolish guy or gal. It's because of God who used them. Do you think for one second... If God had let the people choose another king, they would have in your wildest dreams chosen David, a shepherd boy. David was the very embodiment of somebody that was a, was a nothing and a no one in the eyes of the world, and yet God was looking at his heart. Now you say once again, yes, but what exactly does that mean? What is God looking at? 
Well, certainly he's looking at purity and integrity. But I think primarily in this context, the main thing he is referring to is loyalty. Loyalty. This is exactly what he never got from Saul. He never got unwavering, uncompromising loyalty from Saul. The Hebrew word loyal carries with it the idea of completeness or wholeheartedness. See, God wants our whole heart in the sense that we don't love him or try to serve him with a divided or what we would call in a half-hearted way. He doesn't want divided hearts. He doesn't want half-hearted service. In other words, we can't love and serve God in the world. Guess what? We have to love and serve God or the world. Even as Joshua said to the people of Israel, he said, choose today whom you're going to serve, God or the gods of the Canaanites. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. He was talking about serving God and the world, basically. This is what God was looking for in the heart of the next king. He was looking for a heart that was completely in love with and given over to him without compromise and without any other competing loves. Again, this is not what he ever got from Saul. Saul loved himself. Saul loved the praise of people more than he loved God. So much so that whenever God told him to do something, if it pleased the people more not to do it the way God said it, if by compromising in some way he would become more popular in the eyes of the people, that's what he did. And as we said, eventually God had had enough. God's very gracious. But if we will love others more than him, if we will serve him in a half-hearted way, eventually he'll just take us out of ministry and put somebody else in there. We know this wasn't the first time this happened, but way back in chapter 13, in another time when Saul didn't completely obey God, God sent Samuel to him. We read in chapter 13, verse 14, Samuel said to Saul, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, we read this, and of course, we know that God was talking about David when he said this. And I'll tell you what, guys, this has stumbled many people that can't figure out why God would call David a man after his own heart when David was such an imperfect man. And in their minds, they stumble over that concept because they're thinking, well, that means he was sinless or perfect. That's not what the phrase, a man after my own heart, means. It really has nothing to do with a man being or a woman being perfect, someone who never sins. Listen to me very carefully. It carries with it the idea of loyalty. Loyalty. A person after God's heart, listen, is a person who is as loyal to him as he is to them. To understand this principle, think of marriage. Think of marriage. Think about the loyalty that a husband and wife expect from each other in marriage. I mean, would a husband saying to his wife, I'm loyal to you most of the time? Would that be acceptable to her? Would that be acceptable to a husband to hear his wife say to him, I only cheat on you once in a while? Look, husbands and wives don't expect perfection from one another, but what they do expect is loyalty from each other, especially marital fidelity. Guys, listen. David was not a perfect man. 
We're going to see that very clearly in the weeks to come. But he was a loyal man to his God. We never see anywhere in the scriptures where David ever, ever burned incense to an idol or gave his love and loyalty to anyone or anything other than God himself. That's why God called him a man after my own heart. Because talking to a nation who for the most part was not loyal to God, their hearts were not given fully over to God. They were a people that wanted God to bless them, but they really had other gods in their hearts. Gods of materialism, gods of sexual pleasure, all kinds of things that they were loving and trying to serve beside God Almighty. David was not like that. He said, one thing I have desired from the Lord, and that will I seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to always behold the beauty of the Lord. David was madly in love with the Lord, totally committed and sold out to him. And that's why God called him after my own heart. Why? Because when God loves us, he loves us unconditionally. He loves us uncompromisingly. His love is not based on how we perform. Thank God. So one day I might be a real good Christian. God loves me. What about the next day when I blow it and I'm not such a great Christian? He still loves me. He is absolutely committed to me and wants me to be absolutely committed to him. Is that too much to ask, really? Is God asking so much of us? When he says, look, I love you with an everlasting love. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you forever. Is it too much for him to expect us to say, Lord, I'll never leave you. I will never walk away. I will never love anyone or anything as much as I love you. You will always be my first love. You will always have my complete heart. Is that too much for, for God to expect that kind of loyalty in return from us? So God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse. I'm going to anoint a king. I'm going to, I'm going to anoint a king from one of Jesse's sons. Seven of his sons pass before Samuel. The Lord says, nope, 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 not him. All seven sons. Samuel looks over at Jesse and says, is this it? You got any more sons laying around somewhere? Well, there's one more. He's just a kid. He's out tending the sheep. Even his family didn't think he was so great, okay? He's the runt of the litter. So Samuel says, well, go get him, okay? He said in verse 12, he said, so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah, went back home. Now, many believe that David was around 14 or 15 at this time. The word translated ruddy is the same Hebrew word used for Esau, his nickname Edom, which means red. Because of it, many think that David was red-headed. Although the word could simply mean he was of a fairer complexion than the normal Jewish person or the normal Semite, David could have had lighter complexion, maybe even light, lighter hair. I'm not sure it was blonde, but lighter hair, maybe blue eyes. Even though it says that he was good-looking, that wasn't why God chose him, obviously. We've already talked about that. God chose him because of his heart, because of his heart. And once again, do you think for a second, if God had said to Israel, okay, choose another king, that they would have chosen a 14-year-old shepherd boy? No way, no way. Years ago... 
I had somebody in the church challenge me about my choice for a person to be a leader in one of our ministries. He challenged me with the statement, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. To which I responded by quoting 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Well, man, you know, doesn't see as God sees. Man looks at the outward, appearance, height, stature, but God looks upon the heart. Listen to me as we bring this to a close. God doesn't choose us to serve him based on what we are at that moment, but based on what he knows we can become in time through his power and his grace. That was David. That was David. God chose David not on the basis of what he was at that moment, a lowly shepherd boy, but on what God knew he would become in time through God's power and grace, a great king. I've heard many people say to me over the years, who am I to think that I can serve God? And I say to them that everyone whom God has called into ministry feels the same way, including myself. Moses said, how can I serve God? I stutter. David, Jeremiah, Timothy, Mary were only teenagers when God called them into the ministry. I don't think any of them felt worthy or qualified. Even the great apostle Paul expressed his unworthiness to be chosen by God for the ministry. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. Never forget that. It's never the instrument that's important. It's the one who uses the instrument. God can make us into anything as long as he has our heart. He looked for a shepherd boy to replace Saul because a shepherd boy, anybody who loved the sheep and would faithfully care for the sheep would be one who would love and faithfully care for God's sheep. I mean, molding a man or woman into somebody that can serve him as a great instrument of God, that's nothing for the Lord. Getting a hold of the heart, that's much that's much tougher and God looks for people whose hearts are right that he can then begin to mold their lives but he's the master we're just the instrument let me close with a true story years ago there was a master violinist he was well known around the world and he owned one of the rarest violins in the world a Stradivarius violin now, you've probably heard of these, very expensive. They are considered the finest violins ever made. And whenever he would play at a venue, an auditorium, amphitheater, would do a performance, at the end of every performance, people would jump to their feet, burst into a thunder of applause, but he would hear throughout the auditorium people saying, Oh, that Stradivarius violin, what an instrument! Oh! What beautiful music that Stradivarius plays. This went on for years. So one day he was in town to do a performance that evening. He's walking through town. He happens to see a pawn shop. And in the window, there is an old $2 violin for sale. He starts thinking. Goes in, buys the violin, takes it back to his hotel room. The rest of the afternoon he spends cleaning it, polishing it, putting new strings on it, tuning it. That night at the performance, he played that $2 violin. 
At the end of his performance, like always, people jumped to their feet, clapping, thunderous applause, but he heard throughout the auditorium, oh, that Stradivarius, what an instrument! The beautiful music that comes from that instrument. He let this go on for about a minute or so. Then he took that violin and he smashed it on the stage. You could hear the gasp throughout the whole auditorium. And he calmly walked over to his violin case and pulled out his Stradivarius violin. He held it up and says, this is one of the finest instruments in the world. But without a master to play it, by itself it can do nothing. Didn't Jesus say that of us? Without me you can do nothing. But you can do all things through me if you let me use your life. We need to understand. It's never the instrument that's important. It's the one who uses the... God is the master. We are just the instruments. And that's why God doesn't pick too many Stradivarius violins to serve him. They tend to get the glory, don't they? He goes to the pawn shops and picks out the $2 violins, puts them in ministry, so that when he uses them, he gets all the glory. Very important point. If you want to serve God this morning, if your heart is such where you say, Lord, I do want to serve you, but who am I? It's not important who you are at that moment. It's only important what God can make you in time. If you yield to him, have the right heart, and say, Lord, here am I. You ain't got much to work with, but I'm available. And God looks for right hearts, loyal hearts, and those who are available to do his work through. So as we continue now looking at the life of David, many, many important lessons are in front of us. May God give us grace to bring them out as we continue our study through 1 Samuel. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you choose the base, the nobodies, the worthless, those people that society has written off as, as worthless and, and no good and, and, and so on. Lord, you're all about reaching down to the scrap heap of humanity and taking those that the world has discarded and turning them into something beautiful for your glory. And Father, give us grace that we understand you're the master. You will do the work. Our responsibility is to keep our hearts with all diligence because as our heart goes, so goes our lives. Give us grace, Lord, to have a right heart, a good heart, a heart that is loyal to you, that you might use us fully for your glory. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.